Irish podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're right. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. This is part two of our episode on geriatric psychiatry. On this episode, we will be focusing on behavior issues in dementia, specifically how to treat sleep problems, how to treat agitation. Should you or shouldn't you be using benzodiazepines, antipsychotic medications? Do behavioral interventions work? I think you'll find Dr. Popio's insights very useful. Dr. Dennis M. Popio is an associate professor of psychiatry at the New York University School of Medicine. He grew up in upstate New York and attended Union College. He graduated SUNY Stony Brook School of Medicine and completed his psychiatry residency and geriatric psychiatry fellowship at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. After fellowship, he worked at Mount Sinai for six years before taking his current position at NYU, where he went to revive the electroconvulsive therapy service at Bellevue Hospital. He's now the director of that service and the unit chief of the Medical and Geriatric Psychiatry Unit at Bellevue Bellevue Hospital. Dr. Popio has a particular interest in teaching medical students and residents about geriatric psychiatry. I think that really comes through in both of these podcasts. I hope you enjoy them as much as we did, and I hope that you find these clinical pearls useful for your practice. I want to go back to the case. Let's say it's the same lady. It's now five years later. She's recently been diagnosed with depression, uh, dementia, um, and she's having some. Let's say she's on. Um, she she's been on an SSRI, but her daughter's bringing her back in, saying sometimes she's irritable. She's not sleeping. She's asking like, what what should we put her on? Can can we help her? I I take Zolpidem. Is that a good drug for mom? How how can we handle that? Um. Sleep is a big magilla. Um, I'm not for what's a magilla. I'm not. <laughs> it's you know, it's like it's it, like it's a gorilla. A, yeah, it's like well, but <laughs> I believe I believe technically yes, magilla was a gorilla. Um, from I don't know where. Um, but uh, but no, like I, I see so many people with sleep problems. Um. That that it's difficult. Uh, people with dementia often have sleep problems. So what I would say is like while medications like Zolpidem and its friends are okay for maybe younger people to take every now and then, um, I don't particularly like giving them to older folks. I don't particularly like giving them to um, to older folks because. They they will work, um, but then it becomes really easy for them to be prescribed over and over and over again. And, you know, that is just it's not a really good use, in my opinion, of those types of medications. Um, there's not a ton of data about this, but I feel that um, that prescribing things like Zolpidem are kind of a little bit like prescribing Mm -hmm. things like benzos to help older people sleep in that like their long-term use can actually make dementia a little bit worse and can cause a lot of other problems because 
um you know if if they're if they're gonna get up in the middle of the night and they're all loogie out on on a on Zulpinem or a benzo they'll fall and they'll break a hip and then they'll die because that's what happens yeah. um so so i would say like that there are other options um for sleep and and they are and there are a couple of different ones um trazodone is an old-fashioned antidepressant that uh is not really used for it as an antidepressant anymore um because it is highly sedating um but we use it a ton in in the hospital setting and and for patients because it is it is so sedating and it doesn't really have any of the habit forming or the uh fluctuations of, of blood pressure or things like that 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 we are concerned about um some people use uh gabapentin incredibly off label um for sleep uh so it is not fda approved for sleep at all um but i've used it at times uh for to help people sleep for some reason just sort of settles them down a little bit um and and as i mentioned earlier a low dose of mirtazapine can actually help um settle people down but once again if when you are depressed there's a lot of things that are that can also go on uh, I'm sorry, when you have dementia, there are a lot of other things that can be affecting sleep. Um, you know, uh, if the patient has to, like, wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, like that, they she may not be able to get back to sleep. So that's something that they have, she, the, the family sort of has to look at. Um, some people with dementia get completely sleep-wake reversed, where they're sleeping all day and they're up all night. Um, and that's very hard to uh, to actually fix so so much so that like I know that in in larger places we have one in New York where we have basically an an adult daycare for demented people that runs all night. Um, so you 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 drop off your elderly demented person at like nine p.m. and then you pick them up at nine a.m. Oh, that's because great. it's just, it's just very difficult to sleep wake to switch that sleep break reversal. Um, but again, it's one of these things where you you know you try to chase down as as much things as possible, and then do the same things that we do for sleep hygiene um, that you would recommend to someone else. So like no liquids, no caffeine, um, you know, stop the cigarettes right before bed. So yeah, the, it's it's pretty tough. It are, are you how often are you using trazodone and gabapentin and what would be like some common doses that you might use? And is that something you recommend or is it just like a last resort that sometimes you're forced to do? You know, I do, I do recommend that. I, I sort of like, I take a look and, and speak to the family um, and talk about like, if there's anything, like if they've tried the sleep hygiene route, if they've tried the like withholding liquids before bedtime route. No naps. Yeah. If, if they're not napping, during the day, if, you know, if all of these things, um, then oh, and the other thing that I will that I also want to say is like expectations. So you kind of also want to try to manage the expectations of family members. So an eighty-five-year-old woman is not going to sleep eight hours a night. That's just not going to happen. Like in like a, a fully cognizant eighty-five-year-old is not going to sleep 80, like eight hours a night. You know, we know that as you grow older, your sleep get shorter um and you get less quality sleep so you know a, a lot of people will come in to me and say like i used to sleep nine hours and now i only sleep seven hours and i say congratulations you're doing better than the vast majority of new yorkers get out um but i mean that's part of the thing is sort of like you know uh like 
you know, I hear this a lot. Mom gets up at 4 a.m. and I really wish she'd sleep until 6. And, you know, my answer to that is like, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, like this is, you know, unfortunately, there's there may not be much that we can do about that. We just may have to meet them where they are and try to, to maneuver things around. So if if there is really a sleep problem, if, if if everything is going on, you know, and some people try melatonin, some people say it works. I don't entirely think that it works personally. Um, I don't get exactly how to use it. So, you know, I... <laughs> Uh, I, I'll always remember, like we had, um, like we had this really odd thing where we had a, a sleep expert come for our grand rounds a couple of years ago. And she was like, people are using too much melatonin. You only need like one milligram at the most. And then, uh, six months later, another person came in who was just talking about, um, pharmacology and like benzos and sleep medication, how bad they are. And was like, you need to use melatonin. Even if you have to use 30 milligrams. And I was just like, wait a minute. No, tell no. me the truth. That's a whole pineal gland. Like, what are you doing? Um, right. So. A lot, a lot of patients have tried it already. If you ask them and they'll be like, I think so too. They, they've tried things. And like the one thing, of course, definitely avoid Benadryl. Right. So that's that. So, yeah. but yes, I definitely would think you can think about trazodone. You think about like twenty-five or fifty milligrams. When you think about gabapentin, you can actually, you know, it, the lowest dose is a hundred milligrams. So you can think about one hundred, two hundred, three hundred milligrams, um, and you can be pretty aggressive with with both of those medications. Um, the the gabapentin really doesn't have much of a side effect profile at all. Um, the trazodone, aside from maybe feeling a little bit hungover in the morning, um, I think there's a chance that like men can have some priapism. It's rare, but it can happen. On the other hand, if they do get priapism, at least they know that they won't roll out of bed. So, <laughs> that's not that's old, old nursing home humor. <laughs> I like that. That's good. <laughs> So this, so these are, these are challenging to treat. I, I think it's, yeah. it's really, yeah, it's, it, I, I wish we, we've, we've, we've done a sleep, a show on insomnia and it's always just one of those things where patients never seem to be totally satisfied. I think if they see that you're, you have empathy for their sleep problems and you're working for the, with them and trying things, it, it, it seems to help at least a little bit, but, and some people eventually I feel like they're just like, well, I, I haven't slept for 20 years that well. And you know, it's, yeah. it's often like if someone's coming to you with that problem, the prognosis is pretty poor, but you can at least coach them so that they're getting some, some decent sleep. And every so often, like I had one woman who came to uh, me when I was a, a fellow and was like, I do not sleep. I crawl into bed and fall into unconsciousness. And I was like, well, and? And she was like, that's unacceptable. And I was like, really? It's like, I I just remember thinking about like. That sounds great, actually. Yeah. Like, what is. Why is she complaining? Like, what what should be happening then? (laughs) Jordy, do you have anything that you wanted to ask that we think we we have like, uh, that we're missing? No, so I guess it would be helpful if you could talk us through, um, let's say the same patient was at home and her symptoms have sort of changed from being irritable to perhaps a little psychotic um, burst of anger and her family is really worried about how they deal with it in the moment. Um, Are there any fast-acting agents that you'd feel comfortable prescribing to someone her age? Hmm. So the, the very difficult thing about this 
is um is uh, the sort of like the difference between irritability and like paranoia um and while you know a lot of people think about using benzos in, in older demented people for these bouts of irritability it's okay um to think about but it's risky and it's risky for a couple of reasons um first of all I, they they are definitely habit forming even in older folks even in especially in sort of this not like you know we're going to dole them out here and there short acting agents like alprazolam can be very difficult because of the ups and downs of like the of like that sort of roller coaster thing but in general you know uh there are a couple of things you know we we hear a lot about I don't know if you remember from school um, hearing like, oh, you can't use benzodiazepines in old people because it will dysregulate them and they'll become like there's this paradoxical reaction and they will become more agitated. And so my answer to that has always been, well, that's if you don't use enough. So I always think about I think about benzos like alcohol, whereas if you have like one glass of wine or two, you might become a, a little bit more gregarious and fun. But if you have two bottles of wine, you'll pass out. Oh, I love this. This is great. I never heard that before. Right. So if you think about it, if you're going to give if you're afraid that you're going to make someone, you know, like if and then the of course on the other hand the other big thing about benzos is you don't want to give old people too many benzos because you'll stop their respiratory drive and they'll drop dead which of course doesn't happen um or if it does happen it happens with the two bottles of wine that they had before you gave them the benzo um so and i always say to them okay well you know can't use benzos can't use benzos but for a long period of time before we used propofol which i don't know what the generic of that is um <laughs> i think that's the generic so a long time ago before we used propofol when we did colonoscopies we gave people midazolam and you didn't see little old ladies running out of the colonoscopy suite with like the scope tailing behind them like a little tail <laughs> because they got so crazy and dysregulated that like you just gave them enough midazolam that they fell asleep. And so if you're going to use a benzo, in, especially in the hospital setting, you just give them enough so that they fall asleep and then they're asleep. Um, but for at home, I don't recommend that because... Um, because the, the because number one, you don't want to be telling family members, oh, just give them four or five pills until they fall asleep. <laughs> and number two, um, you know, you don't want them to be on something that can really mess up with their blood pressure and increase the risk of falls, which benzos do in the elderly. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, if you increase the risk of falls, you increase the risk of hip fracture, which increases the risk of death, which then makes people sad. So, um, so what I would recommend is a couple of things um we do not have anything fda approved for uh agitation or uh or anything or or uh or this like dysregulation of emotions in the elderly who are demented the closest thing that we have that we actually can use and that is has been shown to use are the atypical antipsychotics um that comes with the black box warning about increased risk of death for people who are elderly and demented. Um, I think that 
what we have seen after I think it's been like 10 or 12 years since the black box has come out and that that probably has been overstated and have had we looked at the research that's been done now on all of these medications in the demented elderly, it probably would not meet criteria to get a black box, but no one's ever going to take a black box away from a medication because that's like crazy talk. <laughs> um, so what I would recommend is, and, and if the patient is paranoid and that's what's causing their agitation, then they really do require like uh, an antipsychotic medication. And so this is where it gets kind of difficult for a primary care doc, because on one hand, yeah, you know, it's like, this is really the best evidence that we have that can help these people. But it's also a very complex risk benefit analysis. And also a complex thing to discuss with family members, especially when they get like their, you know, the, the little packet of information back from Dwayne Reed. And it says, hey, like this medicine can cause your mother to die. And so, <laughs> you know, that that's that's hard to explain. So, you know, you spend a lot of time doing that and you say, listen, this is the best that we have. Anything else that we could give her um in this class has the exact same warning, but we will carefully monitor her by, you know, checking her EKG to make sure her QTC stays below 440 for women or at least below 500, uh, which is the like sort of that cutoff torsade mm -hmm. point, um, you know, when we're going to check things like her triglycerides and her blood sugars and things like that but this is the only thing that we have now if um if for whatever reason you don't want to give an atypical antipsychotic which is what we usually recommend um you can actually use something like citalopram although that also carries the risk of um of uh, elevated QTC at doses over 20 milligrams. Um, but there is research that shows that in agitation or an, in agitated dementia that helps. Trazodone, again, really helps in that. There's some data that the, the gabapentin can help. Um, but it really is one of these very sort of difficult situations. And the hard part about that is the, the agitation and the... Um, and the paranoia that goes along with the dementia is a big factor in why people end up in nursing homes. Um, yeah. So you do really want to treat this. Um, but unfortunately, it may be one of these things where, you know, you can try sort of the trazodone, you can try the atypical if you're comfortable with that, but it, it may be sort of moving on to your local expert. Um, and the difficulty with dementia is that you may not have a good local expert. Um, in a lot of part, and it really sort of depends on where you are and in what part of the country you are at. But so like, for instance, you know, where I trained all of the, the people who did all the dementia work were geriatric psychiatrists, um, where I am now, it, the vast majority of people who do dementia are neurologists. So those are the two people that you can sort of like look to for help. Um, uh, and then the other thing that I always want to point out and remember when you're dealing with like the agitated demented person is that there is a caregiver on the other side who is dealing with this and the other huge reason why people end up in nursing homes is because of untreated caregiver stress and nobody does a good job at actually assessing the caregivers for stress and so i always i always try to remind people that you know, if you if you've got a caregiver there and you think like, oh, you know, I don't need to sign off on home care because they've got a caregiver. 
sign the home care papers. That person needs a break, you know? Yeah. And the, the better, the easier they are to have a break, the more likely that person is going to be able to stay independent in their home or at least in their home where they're comfortable for longer. I'm glad you brought that up. That's really important. And I, I find that a lot of the times when families are, when they're willing to medicate a patient, even if it has a black box warning, uh-huh. it, they are usually at the end of the rope and they're like, well, there's, I mean, we can't go on the way things are and they're desperate. And so they'll mm-hmm. do anything. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite, uh, do you have a favorite antidepressant or antipsychotic um I, I know that when I was reading, olanzapine and risperidone were some of the ones that were mentioned. But are they all are they all pretty much created equal? Do you choose the new, like the kind of atypicals, or do you choose the earlier generations? Um, it, it depends on a couple of things. Um, you know, when we when the data first came out with the black box, um, it was only on the atypicals. So a bunch of us, so so we all sort of switched to the conventional antipsychotics like haloperidol or flufenazine. Um, But then soon after that, uh, there was a huge study out of Penn that showed that the conventionals were just as bad. So then we were just sort of like, oh, great. And then they extended the black box to them too. So now we were sort of like, eh. Um, So... Uh, there are, there are not a lot of differences between the antipsychotics. Um, the, the large, there's a big study called the Katie study, which looked at head to head trials of, and of atypical antipsychotics in schizophrenia. There was a portion of the trial called the Katie AD, which was specifically for Alzheimer's disease. And it looked at risperidone, um, olanzapine and quetiapine head to head. And, you know the the uh, the quetiapine came out a little bit below, and the the olanzapine came out a little bit ahead. But there were a couple of problems with the study. With you know they sort of dosed the the quetiapine really low. Um, quetiapine is an okay medication. It is uh, like the lowest dose that is out there is sort of twenty five milligrams. That can actually be really helpful. Um, Risperidone is another sort of helpful medication. What is really nice about risperidone is that it comes in a liquid formulation that is odorless, colorless, and tasteless and can be mixed with either hot liquids or cold liquids. So that is um, dubious. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds very dangerous. So no, so here's the thing, and this is what like I've I've discussed this with people before because some people are like, well, is it really ethical to to give a medication like this to a demented old person without them knowing. And so when I look at something like this, uh, I look at um, what can protect the patient's freedom as much as possible in the least restrictive way. And so the way that I see it is if you can manage a patient's um, psychosis at home by giving them doses of medication... And that means they don't have to go to a hospital or a nursing home. I personally think that that is uh, the least restrictive thing. Um, I'm sure ethicists may disagree with me, and 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 that's perfectly fine. Um, but I, I personally think that that's okay. Um, but that's something that uh, you, as a physician, have to decide for yourself, and you know, family members have to decide. Sure. But um, you know, it's. It's it's nice if you know grandpa really only likes ice cream. Um, tossing some of the the risperidone in the ice cream can be helpful. I 
I have to ask this question <laughs> because I know that the American Geriatric Society and there, I think this was part of the choosing. We we did a show with uh, the Jerry Powell folks, and uh-huh. we we were talking about the the some of the recommendations from the American Geriatric Society, and they sort of like recommend behavioral interventions for this. So do your geriatrician colleagues like frown upon that the fact that sometimes you're having being forced to use these atypical antipsychotics? Not not that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Not at all. Um, behavioral behavioral interventions are great. Um, and it's really fun to do studies with them because um, a, a lot of times that they, they work really well. So you get a paper. Um, but it, but they may not work well in the real world all the time. Yeah. And so, so yeah, so, and there are definitely, and, and they also may not be, um, they may not all be that, be that workable for families. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's great that, you know, there's a, a nursing home out somewhere uh, like i think it's in sweden that set up like a little town with a huge fence around it and the and people can go outside and wait for the bus and like wander around paths that all lead back to the nursing home but for the vast majority of americans we don't have that luxury to have that so you know we we have to work with what we have um and the other thing is like i think uh, my geriatric medicine colleagues also realize that we as a country are so vastly unprepared for the poop storm that is going to rain down upon us with the geriatric needs of our baby boomers. Um, It's beyond. So the latest statistic that I always use, which freaks people out, is every day in America, 19,000 people turn 65 and that will continue every day for the next 20 years Yikes. yeah and there are a hundred as i said about 1500 geriatric psychiatrists and at my at the last data i saw something around sixty thousand geriatric medicine specialty trained people yeah so that and if you think about the fact that we have millions of people over the age of 65 and about 25% of them have some form of mental illness or behavioral interest illness. That's about one geriatric psychiatrist for every 8,000 or 9,000 people. You have good job security right now. I have great job security. Unfortunately, I, you know, I am going to be incredibly busy. <laughs> um, so that means like, uh, like other people have to pick up the slack. Mm-hmm. And so that leads up to primary care doctors. And, you know, unfortunately, the you know that's i'm so excited that you asked me on the show actually because um there's not a lot of uh of education out there for primary care doctors um another thing that i find really fascinating is there are only about three states that require cme and geriatrics every year for licensure um but there are about 15 states that require um training in biohazards and in ebola and chemical weapons attacks well so, yeah you yeah. know there's that because that's that's obviously gonna happen you know i i would love to do a future show kind of more talking about uh, we we definitely don't have time to do it on this show i think we've got some great great clinical pearls here for the audience but i want to do one on sort of delirium and some of the more definitely um 
yeah, like, and, and even whether it's inside or outside the hospital, how to deal with that. And we had some specific questions there. So future episodes may be in order here to because there's a lot that we didn't get to that we wanted to talk to uh, in, that we had kind of had planned for tonight. Sure. I had, a, I had a great time. I would be very happy to come back. Well, have a great Thank night. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We like your feedback, so please send it to thecurbsiders at gmail.com or just reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And Jordy, you said you were going to give your middle name on your sign I'm not going to give my middle <laughs> name, so I'm just going to go with <laughs> I'm Jordana Kazowski. Okay. Thank you for joining us tonight, Jordy. Uh, thank you for uh, helping to write and produce this episode. And thank you to the wonderful Dr. Kate Grant for her lovely artwork that she made for this show. And thank you to our social media team. Hannah R. Abrams runs our Twitter. Beth Garbs Garbatelli runs our Instagram. And Chris, the Chew Man Chew, is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. <laughs>